stay hungry, stay foolish. Before we launch into part four, the finale with David Fabini on his book, Hidden Truths, there's a copy up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you will be in the hat to win a copy of that. I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's get into part four. Welcome back for the finale of Hidden Truths with David Fubini. Thrilled to be back. Thank you for having me. Let's jump into getting on board with your boards. We touched on this in part one, I think, where we talked about how you you can be lonely as CEO, but you can connect with your board. And what you said back then was that this is one of the most broken relationships in organizations is the connection between the CEO and the board. Because as you alluded to in part three, it can feel like they're score keeping. How is he doing or is she doing? What are they up to? Have they still got the gumption for this role? All those things are going through the head of the CEO. Meanwhile, the board part of the role is to judge the CEO and see how they're performing. Let's open up with an overall context and then we'll dive into some specifics. One of the things that often as a, a counselor to, to a management teams, I've been asked to say is we'd like you to go talk to the board. We'd let, they want an update and you'd say, great. Well, um, and then you'd, you'd come back with a set of uh, materials and say, this is what I planned to, to say. And, they, and the CEO and others would say, oh my heavens, no, my God, you can't share that much. I mean, we don't want to be that open, and really, and it's and it really is that the the CEO feels some need to manage their board. Um, like they only need to, they you know, they like to only have the top line. They don't really want to go in depth. They and they they can make up all these you know reasons why we need to just sort of let them sort of have a a light touch of what you're trying to do, and that is because they're trying to both protect themselves and also trying to manage the relationship and make sure that the best outcome of a board meeting is fewer questions, happy board, happy management. And that's, uh, unfortunately, I think a very old paradigm. And we have tons of ex uh, of examples of boards who just didn't do the oversight and the help to their own management teams to prevent them from getting in serious trouble. And we, we only need to look at the headlines over the last few months and years to know how many issues there are, you know, VW, Wells Fargo, you know, um, you know, just to name two uh, of just many that we you could point to that say, where was the board? Well, if the board is not involved, that's not a fair question. So that's the context, I guess I would say about all this when it comes to boards. You know, I, I just one little vignette I would say is when I was talking to a group of people about boards as we do here at Harvard. And they said, well, what really, what, what happens in executive committee of, of meetings of a board? And because we were, we're always curious what happens outside when you're in the privacy of an executive committee, which is when everybody leaves except for the, uh, the CEO. And then there's also the executive committee without the CEO. And I said, it's very clear. When we have an executive committee meeting with no staff, just the CEO, we're talking about the senior staff. And when the CEO leaves, I assure you, we're talking about him or her. That is what we're talking about. I mean, and it doesn't matter how great the, the organization is. It doesn't matter how wonderful when we are alone. We're fundamentally talking about the CEO. And that bothers them no end. They hate it because they, want, they lose control. But they have to let control go by. 
David, I know you, you said you, you didn't have experience as a CEO, but boy, have you got experience as a board member. David's member of the CDC Board of Directors for Bain Capital Credit, DLA Piper, Advisory Board Member Quinox, University of Massachusetts Amherst Foundation Board Member, Member of the Board of Directors for J.M. Hoover Corporation, MITRE, Lidos, the list goes on, David. You certainly have experience there that you kept under your hat. I do have I do have a fair bit of board experience. Some of those are, are things that roles I don't play any longer. But yes, I, I certainly have had a fair bit of experience. It's been a lot of fun um, to do that after, after 35 years of being a consultant where I really couldn't be on boards. One of the things you talk about is you as CEO, it is your responsibility to reach out to the board. There's several of them. There's one of you. You have to initiate that relationship, that bridge building. The board will naturally want to gravitate to and be a part of the management conversations. But it really is the CEO manages this is this relationship. It, the core of the relationship is managed by the CEO. Now, uh, listeners will say, yeah, but where's the? what about the chairman or the lead board, lead board member? They're important, but still, they, they have limited degrees of freedom relative to the CEO because they can only push so far. Because, you know, let's remember, boards really have three major roles and only three. They get to ask very thoughtful, probing questions that leads to some action by senior management team. But you don't force that action. You just ask questions that leads to that action. Two, you get to approve certain capital budgets because bylaws require that. Those capital budgets are largely arrived, totally prepared. You know, they've been vetted by 25 different committees before they got to you. It's really hard to stand up and say, I say no, because there's been so much pre-work. And the third thing you can do is fire the CEO. That is it. That's all you got. You know, so you better do the first one really well, which is really engage thoughtfully and meaningfully. So if you're the lead board member and you're saying, I want to change this relationship, you can only change it so far until you basically have to say, well, this isn't going to work. I got to get another CEO. And you're not going to do that. So that's why this is so, so driven by the CEO. So let's give some advice here because you do this. And by the way, we are only touching on the depth of knowledge and experience that's shared in the book, the frameworks, the questions to ask, the advice given by David from all his work, all his experience, and also his time in McKinsey. But you talk about restructuring the board of the board interactions themselves. And you say, it's not just who's on the board, but how they work together that counts. While organizations often have protocols in place to govern these interactions, designated meeting times, places and procedures, CEOs can and should revisit these protocols and change them with an eye towards increased board effectiveness. Doing so may seem heretical, you say but it can pay huge dividends. Here you suggest some of the changes to improve and reset the board dynamic. One, be mindful of your lead director relationships. Two, provide boards with greater insights and less data. And three, loosen up the overly formal meeting schedule and structure, structure that so many boards are almost like a show. They're almost like as we'd say in innovation, innovation theater, but this is board theater. Let me take the middle one first of those that I suggest in the book. Um, most board books are, uh, you know, most the books they send to you before your board meeting can be between 300 and um, as much as 600 pages long. Um, 
And you think, well, wow, that's just an amazing amount of material they're sharing with you. But in some respects, it's a defensive mechanism because they know nobody on the board can read 300 to 600 pages and really assimilate it. And it's a way of sort of keeping you on your heels. So what I would say is, you know, rather than do, I'm not suggesting you, people should not share that amount of data. What they should do is put summaries in and say, here are the key things I think, hope you'll take away from this, this presentation. Here are the three questions I'd love us to talk about as a board. Because that's what we want as a board is to know what you want us to talk about and, and help you. And so few do that. So that's one thing that could really be powerful. I'm on a board where uh, uh, the CEO always starts uh, this summary by saying, here's what went as I thought it would and where it went successfully. But importantly also says, here's where it did not. Here's where things went bad. And here's where you know I was challenged. And I want you to know that. When again, rare that happens, incredibly empowering when it does. So those are the things that you can do to really change the the, the relationship at the working level. Um, yes, don't always mean the boardroom and the corporate headquarters. Get out, go out, and you know, and take the board with you. It's it's yes, it's expensive and time consuming, but do it and go out and visit a major site. Um, on one of the boards I'm on, we're about to make a massive investment in capital in a new plant. And none of us had seen the old plant. And so we went off and we went to, you know, this is a particular, this is a wood products plant, not in the you know easiest place to get to, but we all went. And while we learned what it meant to see this plant and the capital in it, and we saw the people, we talked to them, we had lunch with them, and uh, you know, in, in the plant. And we walked around with them uh, as our guides and they helped us understand just why we need to spend that much capital on this, this sort of event. There's no replacement for that. Um, you cannot get that sitting in a, in, a, in a conference room. So that's one reason of breaking up the, the traditional approach is also important. Uh, the other way we talked about is you know, engaging with your lead board member. Your lead board member is, in many cases, the conduit from the CEO in the, back into the board. Sure, sure. The CEO has, has relationships with all of us on the board, but it's the um, the lead board member to whom we all go to and say, "Hey, you know, she is not doing this, or he's doing too much of that," and he or she is the one who goes to the CEO and says, "Look, at the, the board's uncomfortable about this." You have to have a relationship with them that allows that conduit to happen cleanly, clearly, crisply, and without you know sort of defensiveness. So that's an important part of who you choose to be your board chair or your lead board member. All of this is, is done in the context of just the CEO has to basically say, hey, I'm, I'm willing to be confident enough about my own abilities to be open and candid and transparent with my board rather than manage them. And if you really are open and candid and transparent with your board, you're going to get a really much better result from your board. And if you don't, you'll end up as one of those headlines we just spoke of. Let's move on. Speaking of, of getting out there, you talk about the paradox that many leaders have to face. This is moving on to, and in the light of what happened with Patagonia, this is quite a meaningful chapter that you dedicate to this. And our mutual friend, Charles Kahn, your former McKinsey colleague as well, he's on the board of Patagonia. And this chapter is called Do Good While Doing Well. 
and you introduce this chapter with an overview of a following paradox. I'm going to quote this. I love your writing here. Today's leaders must find a way to manage a frustrating paradox. The complexity of the corporate, social and political environment today requires that CEOs must do more than satisfy the commercial needs of the organization. They must also role model that word again, desired behaviors and meet societal demands for good corporate citizenship while delivering financial and operational results. It is no longer acceptable to satisfy shareholders without also finding the time and marshalling the resources to meet the needs of various stakeholder groups such as environmentalists, employees, retirees, community advocates, state regulators and many others. Ignorance of these EHS issues, environment, health, safety, can often put organizations into potentially explosive situations that play out negatively in the public domain, as we know, David, can severely affect share prices, undoing all the hard work you did. This work is essential, and it should have always been essential. It just got away from us for a period of time there, and it's back on the card. Even since I wrote those words, you know, probably uh, 18 months ago, you know, the situation as we've all experienced and we all know is actually getting more precipitous. It's even more important. There are now regulatory reasons that you have to do this. Um, um, the SEC is about to put in disclosure requirements. You know, we have major investors like BlackRock and Vanguard saying, we're not going to invest in you unless you're meaningfully uh, in, engaged on these topics. And even Harvard and McKinsey have both published studies that say, you, you actually have better returns when you actually spend more time on these issues. So it's not, it isn't without uh, the downside that many people believe existed in this paradox. Having said that, the paradox still exists because day to day, CEOs still have to meet the needs of a quarterly demanding market of analysts and other expectations around them. And they are saying, yes, but all of what you're telling me that I now also have to do is costly, it's, it's time consuming, it requires capital. And by the way, it probably can affect my ability to have those quarter on quarter earnings. And it's, uh, how do I deal with that? I often will be saying, they'll say, so what do I do about that, Dave? And I go, well, the only thing I can tell you is live with the frustration. You know, it's back to my father's comment, cooperate with the inevitable. This is inevitably gonna be a challenge. So cooperate with it rather than fighting it and figure out how to work with it rather than constantly fighting a battle, because if you fight the battle, you will lose. Um, either the, the, um, the environmental health and sustainability and climate issues will overwhelm you, or you'll, you, or you'll be so much uh, you know, seen as a corporate, you know, you know, focused only on earnings to the expense of everything else. And it's, it's, so you'll lose. So you know, really live with that frustration. There are a number of other things one can do, but this is the first thing is just to embrace it and know that it exists and it's not going away and you're going to have to deal with it worth a show all in itself as is the next topic as well because these topics that you talk about are so prevalent today that they as you said 18 months ago they were burgeoning but now they're on everybody's agenda the next one is the value of diversity and inclusion within organization and you say here embrace the value and reality of diversity and just to give context before we launch into this, so we've done a series on this, David, we had Joan C. Williams on talking about her brilliant book, Bias Interrupted, and she does a magnificent job in that book. 
But what I really liked about this chapter is, and you devote a whole chapter to it, is you are looking at this from the CEO role, from the leadership role, from the difficulties there, but also the opportunities. And I'll set some context here. You say, we need to ask and assess continuously, you say, do leaders or CEOs showcase through their words, and most importantly, their behaviors, genuine belief in inclusivity. And as you also talk about, the big problem is most biases, like the truth, are hidden or invisible. Many people articulate in very thoughtful ways, even more so than I can, the value of diversity and inclusion and how important it is. And then in the reality of their day-to-day and the decisions they make, they don't. And therein lies the challenge. You have to truly be a believer. As I say in the book, you have to believe in this, not in the head, but in the heart. You have to actually know that there's enormous value to this. Um, Otherwise, it's so easy to just let the, uh, the challenge of the moment slip away and sort of justify an action that says um, that it allows your own bias to play through in ways that you probably may not even understand. You know, uh, now I've been helped along in my own um, uh, life because I'm one of six children. I have five sisters. So I, I have lived in, I was grew up in an environment where you know, we were all equals. There was, I, trust me, I, you know, if anything, I was, the, not only was I a minority, I was treated like the minority. And so I always, I'm, I'm really gender blind as a result. And so, um, so it's easy for me to be a believer, uh, but it's harder for others who, as you say, have these hidden biases. You, the, the thing that's also important is to recognize that this isn't a numbers game. Yes, in the end, you'll be measured on how many you know, diverse um, background people you have evolved and and how you well you've included others in 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 a specific management, but if you're only about the scorekeeping, you'll never play the game differently. It's got to be you got to play the game in a way that actually recognizes the value and the belief that and the numbers will just follow. And one way to do that, I talk about in the book, is don't. Go try and think about how you hire one or two people. You have to build cohorts of people. We all are, you know, genetically want to work with others like ourselves. And so, you know, it's very hard if you're from an underrepresented background to say, oh, here, I'm giving you this wonderful opportunity and you're going to be the only one. Why? You know, it's like that is just terrifying to an individual. You know, it's not something to be applauded, that's something to be derided. If I say, no, I want you to be one of five that are going to try and do something here. Oh, well, hell yeah, I, I'm, I, I feel like I can do that. So build cohorts, you know, really. And and you're going to have to go beyond, you know, the, oh, I hired a headhunter, to, you know, to bring in a, a diverse HR head. Well, yeah, okay, so what? You know, I mean, congratulations, that even, that's not even prerequisite to success. It's a negative. You want to bring your own personal network of people together and let them understand the value here. It is something that has got to be, as I said, more heart than head. Um, uh, and I really think that's uh, missing in a lot of the discussion about how to do this amongst senior management team. Uh, I was on a board where we somebody said, look, at, we, we have this little, we have such little turnover, we can't change the diversity because we have no available slots. 
Uh, that's the perfect rationale, right? You know, so, and you're like, going, no, 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 you're missing the whole point. No, the point is you have to change your, your, your management team because you'll be stronger, better, more thoughtful if you have a more diverse group of people doing this. So, you know, I don't care that you're not hiring people. I care about the skill set that you're building amongst your team. Change the team. It took a long time to develop biases over your life. And, and actually, if you talk about epigenetics, it was before your life, even it was maybe something in your society or your, your genetics that actually led to the way you think, which has been proven as well by science. And I really loved what you said about a CEO going, Okay, you know what, we have hired a head of diversity. That's the beginning of a long, long journey because it took us a long time to get to this point, it's going to take a long time to unravel it as well. I thought that was a piece of absolute gold for CEOs. When people tell me, Oh, look, at we've hired this wonderful head of diversity, and, and, and they they pause for the applause. And I'm like going, Okay, great. As you just said, you've taken the first step in a very long journey is by no means the beginning of any end. It's, it's the beginning of the beginning. Um, you know, um, and, and the problem is it often becomes symbolism. It almost becomes, you know, look what we've done over there. We put that person on a pedestal. That person never can succeed because they've actually never been given the opportunity to do anything other than be, you know, in the role of diversity and hold some diversity training. That is going to be failure mode. Um, so it's a very important point. Um, and I, I too often hear, you know, when we talk about diversity inclusion, oh, look at what we've done in the way of our we're hiring a diversity person. Uh, and I, I always just roll my eyes and think you are just not getting it. You don't understand. That's a that's a that's a head view, not a heart view. <laughs> I can imagine them there today, but <laughs> yes, the board, a high five, and you're like, leave them hanging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's barely a minimum acceptable. Two final topics I thought we'd share. One would be a difficult one. And it, it was kind of related to why I planted that seed in part three about, you know, coaching somebody to take over from you or mentoring them in some way to kind of go, you know what, I'm not gonna be here forever. I want to pass on everything I've learned to you. But as you say, sometimes that's not your choice anyway, because <laughs> you don't hold back here, you say, even the best CEOs have a Damoclean sword hovering over their heads. Some CEOs know this is the case and accept it as part of their role. Some, however, may think they are invulnerable because of their performance, or the contextual circumstances supporting their position. So this is about departure times and knowing when it's time to go. As we said at the beginning of this whole conversation that we've been having, um, it used to be that uh, boards would think they failed if they had to fire their CEO. Uh, unfortunately, now the, life, the world has changed to the, the point now where boards actually take credit for having fired their CEO because this shows that they're really caring and they're really going to make a change happen. So you can imagine that sometimes the uh, the situation just evolves to where it's not tenable to stay. I, I, I think there are a few things that one can say about this situation for CEOs. Is The first is um, generally things aren't going as well as you believe they are. I know that sounds pretty harsh, but it, we, you know, not surprisingly, most leaders think that things are in better shape than they may very well be, and certainly how they're perceived to be. And it's always good to actually, you know, look in the mirror and and, and not think you are as quite attractive as you believe yourself to be. Uh, and so that is that I, I think more so than anything else is important because 
if you constantly think, oh, I'm I'm involved, you know, I'm not, I can't be touched, and I'm invulnerable, you're 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 kidding yourself. You just are. Um, you you have to realize that there's going to be challenge everywhere, uh, and again, it's this embracing it rather than ignoring it. Um, and you know, sometimes you may look at that challenge and say, am I the right person to take on that additional challenge? I mean, this may not be my skill set. I may not have the energy. I mean, this calls on some other aspect of what I should do. And you leave, not because you're afraid of it, because it's just not who you are. And by the way, that gets valued by people. Um, so sometimes it's really important to say, I shouldn't just stay on because I should stay on. You know, this is a new game. I'm not good for this game. Somebody else should do this. Um, there's an old adage of leave them wanting more. Um, I'm sure it comes from, you know, um, any number of different disciplines, not the least of which is theatrical. Um, you know, don't do the next, don't do the another encore when when you know you've done four. You know, <laughs> you know it's. You know, and there are many CEOs who are like, oh, I'm going to do another encore. I'm going to expand. I'm going to extend. I'm going to extend. You, that eventually just gets really old. Um, so leave <laughs> them wanting more is important. Um, and think about your own legacy. Um, it's easy to say to rationalize why you have to stay because the money is important and the glitz and the glamour and the role, and you might really love your job. But also, it may be that now is the right time to leave for your own legacy and therefore possibly for the legacy of the company that you've been leading. Um, I don't think that people think enough about legacy. I think they think too much about, you know, um, what they did uh, yesterday and what they're going to do tomorrow. Uh, I think those are things that are challenging for many people in CEO roles because they're running so hard. It's hard to step back and do the things I just said. But on the other hand, those who do generally leave in a better way uh, than those who are asked to leave. I love your uh, the metaphor of the encore. It's like, you know, we're going, we're done. And then it's like one more song. One more time. Yeah. <laughs> but that's exactly what happens at the end of the career. You might retire because this will link nicely to the last topic is where you retire. And then you kind of go, oh, retirement isn't everything I thought it was going to be. Maybe I will play one more song. And then you go back out looking again. So we'll come back to that because I want to mention again, friend of the show, friend of yours, he's up the corridor for me there in the Harvard Business School. Hubert Jolie, you cite him as one of the CEOs, along with Larry Culp, who left brilliantly, and almost created a template of how to leave. Both of those are, are just outstanding examples of people who ask the question about um, when is the right time for me to be the leader? When is the wrong time for me to be the leader? You know, how do I think about um, the, the the entity that I've been leading? Am I the natural person to continue? Um, Legacy certainly on both of their parts are are, are without um, any, any chink in that army that they both left brilliantly. And as you say, I think they've set out a template. Now both of them have have another um, another era of contributions. Hubert now through uh, Harvard and through his board work, he's a he's a force on several major boards. Uh, his book is uh, his way of giving back. And as we know, Larry uh, taught here at Harvard for four or five years and then um, took on the thankless task of trying to be the person to turn around General Electric. And it's been ridiculously difficult. And he's the first to tell you it's, it was a challenge that only he knew some of, but not all of. But, you know, when you speak about legacy, um, I, I don't think Larry would mind my saying, telling you this. 
I asked him, well, why? With all that you did at Danaher, would you think? And he said, I couldn't let Thomas Edison's company, you know, go go under. I I, I wanted to be the one who actually honored that the legacy of that of that effort and GE being what it meant to the United States over its entire history. I couldn't be the one to not try and help fix that. And you've got to honor that. So there's another legacy play. So uh, both are great examples. It sounds like um, childbirth, you know, when your wife forgets how hard it was the first time, and then that's another one because he goes, I forgot how hard it was. It is hard. I mean, <laughs> and, you know, and I've never done it. Either, and certainly will never do either of those two things, be the CEO or uh, do what my wife does. But uh, you're right. Uh, it, you can at least... Uh, play back what it, you think it feels like well, you alluded there to as well where you're, you're kind of going uber moved on and he he wrote his book and he does coaching and he's on boards and he also teaches up the corridor from you but he he prepared for that and the point here is that just as you say most ceos don't prepare to take the office even less probably prepared to leave the office and what will happen afterwards. And the belief that, oh, I live on the golf course and I'll have a good time, that works for very, very few people. you got to really love your golf to be getting fulfillment and purpose from that. It's really important. And it was driven home by when I left McKinsey, I went to the former managing director, Ron Daniel, who had seen many, many people leave. And I said, Ron, tell me the secret of, of leaving successfully. And first, his first question was, when do you plan to retire? And I said, well, in two years. And he goes, well, you're late. Yeah, you should have started sooner. I mean, so that's the first thing. I, you, this takes time. You've got to think about it. It takes time. You know, that's important. Um, and then he said something to me. He said, look, you've been part of a very knowledge-based institution. If you want to still be relevant, you're going to want to go to another knowledge-based institution. Otherwise, you, you just won't renew yourself uh, and you know, playing golf and doing a little bit of investments in Florida is not going to renew you, uh, your intellectual. And so I always thought that was brilliant advice. Um, and that's actually why I ended up at Harvard. So um, I think you, you, what we're talking about here is CEOs have to plan. You really have to plan. And then you have to have a passion. Um, you know, Hubert has a passion about leadership and he really wants to make a difference. You know, Larry Culp had a passion about saving, you know, an American icon, a company. I have a passion for teaching students. Um, it was I didn't know it at the time. The dean here, thank God, figured it out before I did. Um, and I've been blessed to have that passion now. Um, you know, and the other is that you you also think about having done that, feed the passion and and worry, don't worry about the money. Don't ever chase the money. Um, there are many uh, CEOs who think, okay, I've got to go out and get on speaker bureaus and make and make speeches and, you know, and they sound like canned speeches. And then, you know, their first three speeches, they get paid a lot of money. And before you know it, people are like going, you know, that wasn't very fulfilling. You know, I'm not going to pay to hear that guy or that gal. And that's, so you chase the dollars, you'll, you won't have the passion and it will end up costing you. So I think those are some of the things that, that CEOs really need to think about um, before they, um, they leave. Um, I'll just leave you with this. I recently spoke to a very prominent um, politician who's retiring, and uh, I gave him the same advice I gave to many, which is at a very practical level is, where's your office going to be? Because when you leave, you know, you have to have a place to go, you know, I mean, because most of us, 
you know, are not going to be welcome back at the house. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and, and if, if you, it's, it's unhide a, the truths, unhide yeah. the truths, you know, and it sounds like a silly question. And I'm sure this is a very prominent politician of, of much stone. He's like, looked at me, he goes, well, what do you mean? Where's my office going to be? I have a lovely office in my home. And I was going, yeah. And, you know, are you going to meet, you know, people there that are, you know, going to be now your, your colleagues in your future? Is that where you're going to get your renewal from walking down the halls and talking to people? I mean, who's going to do your administrative support work? Because you've had legions of those people doing it now. You have none. You know, you got to think about this stuff. And it's like, oh, my God, I didn't think about any of that stuff. So there's also the practical stuff. Uh, you know, where is your office going to be? You know, I, have, I thank God I'm, I'm, I have the opportunity to be at Harvard. And, and here's my office here. I see students here. This is my new home, you know. Um, but you have to think that about that as too. So there's some very logistical, simple stuff that people forget about. And that's the absolute beauty of this book as well. David gets into the nitty gritty, he gets to ask those questions that very few people rarely ask both themselves or get asked by consultants or coaches in any way. And I absolutely highly recommend I've bought the book for a few people now, David, CEOs, leaders, or people who are going to be leaders, whether they know it or not, because they need to do the prep work as well. Final question for David is, for people who want to find you, reach out to you, where can they find you? It's easy to find me. Go to the Harvard Business School faculty website. I will pop up. You can leave me an email right there. Or go right to me. I'm also available on LinkedIn. So you can always find me. Author of Hidden Truths, What Leaders Need to Hear But Are Rarely Told. I want to thank you for all the time you've invested in this show. Absolutely enjoyed every moment. David Fubini, thank you for joining us. My thanks all go to you uh, for putting this together. And to those who might listen or view this, thank you for doing so. It's an honor for me. So thank you for giving me this honor. Whoa, really enjoyed that one. David Fubini and his book Hidden Truths, absolutely essential reading for CEOs, but also for consultants and coaches as well. So useful if you're a coach to CEOs or to people in leadership positions or to high potentials that could be CEOs in the future. It talks about all the things needed in preparation, but also preparation for exiting as a leader in a business. As always, thank you to our sponsor, Zai Boli, transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. We'll see you very soon for more content. Hope you're enjoying these shorter episodes. That was one of the requests for people. Aiden, break it down so I can consume the content that you're producing. So here you go. Hope you like it. Please do give us feedback. Subscribe to the show. Leave an iTunes review so it helps the algorithm get the show in front of more people. Thank you and see you soon.